As a startup, you will need to move fast, but your challenge is going to be that you have limited resourcing. If you find yourself working to the 100% answer, you are likely moving too slow. Hello, and welcome to Exponential Every Day, where we will explore all the everyday things in our lives, work, family, relationships, that bring an exponential effect into our world. I'm Tracy Cambies, a girl raised on a farm who landed her dream job at 22 and launched a successful 20 plus year career as a corporate warrior and senior executive, making seven figures all the while being a mom, a wife, a multi-sport athlete, and a side hustler in real estate. I love all things food, travel, and experiences, and I look forward to spending time with you I took a leap to exponentially change my life and set out to start and build a business with heart and meaning and authenticity to help change the trajectory of others. From creators and founders and small businesses, my heart is in helping find the exponential factor in business and in life. So join me as we take this journey together and learn more and really achieve exponential every day. Well, welcome Todd Paris to Exponential Every Day. Thanks for joining. Todd, I know we've known each other for a long time. Let's give everyone that's listening a little background on you and tell us how you landed in the startup space. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Um, I started my career 30 years ago, so some time ago, and it was really a balance between consulting, so consulting services, and then industry. Where I started was with KPMG Consulting in the services space, and from consulting at KPMG into Microsoft, and this is where I spent a good number of years and I, I really did dive deep into the digital marketing space. And at Microsoft in 2006, I ran our product team and our product marketing team focused on the digital marketing tool set to combine the best practices and all of the frameworks and methodologies from consulting into an industry space. And that's what gave me the epiphany or the aha that we were able to deliver ads to individuals from a digital marketing sense. What we couldn't do is we couldn't meet people where they actually lived. So in the physical world, and that's where we still spend today most of our time. And that's where we wanted to be, but we couldn't reach the individuals. And that was our big problem. And then at one point in time, around 2013 or 2014, I decided to leave Microsoft to take some time off. And it, literally, it was the day I left Microsoft, I got a phone call from a friend that said, hey, you might want to talk to this person, I didn't know, who has an idea using SIG or Bluetooth 4.0, how to reach individuals in the real world from a digital sense. And so I had a quick conversation with this person, we hit it off, and right then the answer to the question that I had at Microsoft, how do we reach individuals in the real world with a digital experience became a reality. Where I started my career in generally in consulting, went into Microsoft, dove deep. All of that led me to that problem set, to that epiphany, to be able to understand a point problem and solution, and then ending up finding a solution in 4.0 to be able to, to meet the need. 
So I've really crossed the gamut from big corporations, consulting all the way down to startups. So would you say that what really inspired you and sparked your interest was to understand the consumer better and how advertising could actually reach a consumer individually? Or was there something just more intriguing about it being a startup in general outside of what you saw was the gap at Microsoft? It was the gap itself that left me sort of scratching my head wondering, you know, how do we how do we solve for that? And there wasn't an answer at the time. And so I sort of pivoted, to be honest. And then it was the epiphany, more than an inspiration, there's a new technology solution that's being put to market that I can see how to connect it to a real world problem and then solve it. And so it really wasn't inspiration as much it was as a technology solution that met the problem that I had encountered at Microsoft. And so what stage did you enter into the picture? The, so the conversation I had with that, with that person, he had been following the development of the spec over an 18 month period or so, had an idea only of what it could look like, the MVP could look like but didn't have the industry experience to apply it. And so he was really at the idea stage, just starting to move into some simple code, but no real definitive problem set and no real MVP code. So when I came in, it was pre any institutional investment, but it was where they had raised money from friends and family. It wasn't at the MVP stage, it was just at the idea stage. And so that person was a technologist, the founder, uh, ended up becoming my co-founder was a technologist and I was the business person. And so the two of us came together pretty neatly to be able to take that solution and apply it to the real world. When you talk to or look at other startups, you live in the big areas of startup land, right? Living in Seattle. Did you see others that decided this was the right startup for you to join at this time? When I was living in Seattle, and you're right, Seattle's a, a pretty big hotbed for the Pacific Northwest. Microsoft's there, Amazon's there, and that has started a big, or did days ago now, start a, a big community uh, for startups. So when I when I met the individual and we talked about the solution, the it was a bit obvious to me from the business perspective. And so it was an easy place for me to start, to dip my toe in and to do some basic advising. And so I started out just advising him and two uh, devs that he had, had that he had found in the local community in the Seattle area. I was just advising, and then we had an opportunity to move into uh, TechStars. And the accelerator for us was a great win, but the application process is pretty lengthy. Um, and so I was advising through it and getting more and more involved. And by the time we actually then moved into TechStars, we were accepted. Then I started to move back towards advising more full-time and eventually just to join the company as an FTE. The Techstars incubator, I guess it is, right? Was that really more of the first big step that you as an advisor kind of leaned into with, with the founder and got them on that road? Or were they already in that direction when you joined the picture? They were moving in that direction, but were not yet part of uh, any incubators or accelerators. And so that I helped through that process, uh, helped them move. But the key thing that I did as an advisor was to connect one, the problem set with the solution, but then two was to use my personal network back at Microsoft. And so I made some introductions and then we started working with Microsoft as the very first enterprise client, really first client. 
and we were lucky enough it was the you know the brand of Microsoft. And so going through the accelerator program, then coupling it with Microsoft as our first big client, I think that was the value I supplied or provided from an early advisor and then on to an FTE. When you think back on that experience and the role that you played, did your role change from advisor into more of a full-time employee and it, to <laughs> more of the founder slash more organizational structure type role that you would play to help drive the business? And when you took on that role or shifted into that role, what was the biggest difference that you saw having the more structured play into the overall company? So from advisor, then I became an FTE. And I think my first role was at COO. But title sort inside startups, especially initially, are a little bit beside the point. It really is all hands on deck. Everyone needs to have a way to create value and drive. But but titles, of course, matter a bit to the to the outside world. So COO, initially when I joined, and when I first started advising, I was an outside person sort of, hey, I got an idea. And I would kind of push one direction or the other, but I didn't own it. Coming in as COO, that tied back to corporate America. Just I've run big teams, I've run global teams, I've run budgets, operations. And so bringing that all into the startup and then starting to put a little bit of control in place. But I too had a lesson learned there in that I took that structure and I definitely listed on the too much structure too early initially. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big lesson for me was you can't simply lift what you did at Microsoft, for example, and, and put it um, on a team of 10. It just, it can become burdensome. It can get in the way. And it did for a little bit. So we quickly pivoted away from some of that structure, but did make sure we were doing things as efficiently and as effectively as possible. We did also at Techstars, I took that learnings uh, when I was at Techstars mentoring and worked with a few different companies uh, around exactly that. And one company in particular, another, a similar solution actually with, and so the point there is you need to really customize your approach either towards the, obviously the lesser structure or more structure, but all uh, companies can benefit from some operational structure. So from COO, then I became CEO. And that was when we started to move towards trying to raise our next round. And that can become a full-time job. And so with my connections and some of the corporate experience I have, that fit well kind of with what I was, what we needed to do to raise the next round. And so became CEO and then started spending quite a bit of time more with the VC community. But what was the biggest difference like, for, that you think about when you were, when you stepped into that role of CEO, when it came time to now put that solution out, out into the market? The, so by definition, the CEO role is pretty broad. So you need to have operations, you need to understand finance, you need to understand the product and at an early stage startup, mid stage startup, you need to understand the problem set. Um, so you need to have a broad set of experiences. But the, the most important thing for me at the time was getting very, very close to the initial customers because I had a detailed understanding of what the customer needed. And all too often at Techstars mentoring, as well as some of my own experience outside of Techstars, 
is there's some very smart technologists out there and there's some very cool technology-based solutions. But without that connection back to the real world, it starts to become technology for the sake of technology or you're the hammer kind of running around and everything looks like a nail. As the CEO, I needed to have that cross-functional knowledge, but I needed to be able to connect right down to the customer problem. If you don't have that, probably won't have the inspiration. You probably won't have the passion to go solve for that as well. Yeah. So you've moved now into that role as CEO, the solutions ready to launch. What were your top three lessons learned from launching that solution and in the services that you guys wrapped around it or needed to wrap around it with those first clients that you talked about? Having the solution connected extreme at launch connected to a problem set period. Number two is the idea of your first customer. So for us, it was Microsoft and that, that was great. Sounds great, was great, but you sometimes have to be aware that the big enterprise client will, even a, a strong mid-sized brand will start to wag the dog. Your developers will all of a sudden be developing for the enterprise. The other one is putting forward your pilot or your MVP, you will want to acquire revenue. You will want to sell into the client, make money, make money. But probably the most important thing is that you're learning, you're testing, you're learning, and you're going back and forth through this iterative process. So in some ways is you need to put aside the drive for revenue and make sure you're prioritizing the testing and learning so that you end up with something that you can scale. And the other piece, in addition to revenue, in addition to testing and learning is when you sign your first clients, big and small, make sure you have a contractual ask that they will be a qual for you, that they will be a case study for you. If you can get them to agree, they'll get out and talk publicly about your solution because it's that credibility plus what you're learning plus revenue that will drive all the success. founders lose sight, particularly those that are more tech centric? Do they get lost in making the MVP perfect versus doing the test and learn? Yeah, hundred percent. In fact, that comes in that I've seen it peer in two different ways. One is that drive for perfection, which everyone feels good about. They can slow you down. You can't get enough done or you'll not move quick enough through the MVP and take those learnings and put it back into your roadmap and iterate. You keep driving on the thing or the, the next step or the next gate and you only focus on it myopically. It'll destroy or at least slow down of your progress. So yes, they can become the enemy of success thinking about just being perfect. The other area, and this was when I was raising money, I learned after the fact was we were going through the due diligence and coming from Microsoft and coming from consulting, you had to drive to the right answer. It had to be a good, well-structured, well-supported answer. Well, raising money and, and talking to VCs and then actually going through the process and working through the clean room and all of the documents that are required. I can't tell you the number of times that I was told, oh, the decks are great. The PowerPoints are great. All the financials, so well-structured, the budgets, you know, so well outlined. By getting so many positive compliments, I realized we had spent too much time on it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in a startup, a B answer, even C answer can be okay. As long as you can connect, then keep on moving to the next step. Going for the A, the 100% answer, 
probably means you're spending too much time with your limited resourcing. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Let's now switch to, if I'm a founder. I want to know like, what are the pitfalls that I should really look out for? And I think you've, you've highlighted a few kind of lessons learned already, but like, these are the things that as a founder of a startup, if I'm in a minefield, which as a startup, there's a lot of, uh, places where you could step on a, a mine accidentally, but how do I avoid those? What are some of those that I should be looking out for? So it sort of goes back to some of the lessons learned. The first thing right out of the gate is to make sure you know your customer and know what their problems are and that you're solving for something real world. Don't get caught up in your own glory and your own neat technology solution that's technology-based. When you start to raise money, not all money is good money. And you really do need to parse out. And this is back to institutionally, are they lined up with you? Certainly. And are they supportive of your strategy, et cetera? But at the individual level, take the time to get to know the individuals inside the institution or inside the strategic to make sure you are connected with them at a personal level problem and start solving for what you think should is neat or should be solved for using your technology solution so don't get caught up in your own brilliance in your own brilliance as well yeah you talked about funding and knowing the people in the funding organizations and that you're seeking funding from in your mind is there a right way or a wrong way to get funding you talked a little bit about friends and family safe strategics the next place to really think about but making sure those relationships and you know who you're getting to funding relationship with series a and b and so on and so forth is there a right way or wrong way to go about it is there any real right or wrong way of doing it <laughs> There's many right ways and there's many wrong ways to go down. If I think the driver for you to raise money as a founder should be specific. It's not just that you need money. And so it should be toward, geared towards operations, for example, maybe hiring more salespeople, maybe more devs to be able to build a, a solution and go through your roadmap, not just simply take money. There's a rough calculation that everyone uses. And I think it's really important. You raise money relative to your plans, relative to your burn. And you should have roughly 18 months. And maybe as economy is getting tighter and money is getting more difficult to get, maybe you should have a longer burn before you tap out of money. But if you're in a position where you're, you've got your burn in control, you've got revenue coming at the top line, then not all money is good money. So you may not need to take money. So don't just jump that obvious thing to do, raise money. But think about what your needs are. Think about what your burn is and all relative to your plans. I think that's really sound advice. When you think about non-tech startups, other, uh, you know, a CPG brand, a fashion brand, when they think about going to market and getting funding, um, there's are truly a lot of times that those investments are truly about the hard assets in their in their world, whether it's to you know be able to expand their inventory purchase or to be able to go launch maybe a physical store or create a partnership with someone that they need to put more inventory into a store or make it available digitally. Are there critical like things founders should think about from like partnership models, regardless of the type of entity that they are, whether they're a tech startup or they are like a fashion brand or a consumer pro consumable brand? 
That's actually a good question. Even in the technology world, I think they're they're pretty similar when you move just off of tech into maybe more physical goods. Um, and we did start a partner program that did a couple different things, and I think this applies more broadly. Um, one is you need credibility in the space. So if there's someone that is a strategic that is playing on the edge of your space and you it makes strategic sense to partner with them, you can benefit from their credibility right off. the partnership models I was thinking about was the providers on a tech startup, like some of the hardware and software or cloud-based partnerships that could be beneficial mm. to startups, right? Like creating an early, an early agreement with a technology provider that you find or have had experience with, or you think mm -hmm. is the best solution. But like, I think about, um, recently I, we had a podcast with, uh, the CEO from Harper Sage and, you know, one of her early partnerships was through neighborhood goods stores, which are a small set of stores in online presence. But then that led to a connection with Madewell, right, which launched her brand on Madewell. I just think as a startup and a founder, I don't know if, if, if traditionally that has been the case, if startups and founders have actually thought about those partnerships, or is it something that just kind of evolves along the way? And should should founders really take that on? So yes, there's a very early stage, no. Yeah. I think they need to be pretty myopically focused on, but, but when you're talking a B, when you're starting to move towards B and you're starting to actually scale, mm -hmm. then I think partners do come in, partnerships do come into play. So initially you're a vendor, say, say for cloud, you know, you're on GCP, you're on Google and Google, they're a vendor for you and you're kind of engaged in that kind of relationship back and forth. But as you start to scale, your value prop becomes more interesting. Google ventures may take note. Other parts of Google may take note and they all have their own startup programs and startup benefits sort of <laughs> shift from being a vendor into a partner. And I think that applies to on the technology side, the technology stack. No, uh, across the board. Mm -hmm. And then I do think on the, the partnership side, if you have aligned goals and maybe you're part of a larger solution that an enterprise offers, like we had at Microsoft, then striking a strategic partner with them to go to market together, then that's where you can fit your solution into a more holistic solution mm -hmm. and, and scale alongside the larger enterprise as well. I think the last question that I had for you is, and you've given lots of great pointers and advice for startups and, and founders. Any last piece of advice that you have for anyone who wants to start their own brand or business? Make sure your, your startup, your solution, your product solves for a particular unmet need or a problem in the marketplace. If you're not doing that, then you're likely building a solution that you think is interesting or neat and you're probably going to have a bit of a problem raising money you may have a problem finding a customer and that means you ultimately won't scale the flip side if you do have the industry expertise to be able to connect a solution or to understand an unmet need and you're building something for it then you know, the sky's the limit well i appreciate that i think um as a 
founder and co-founder myself. These are lots of good tips from our conversation today. I think others should, will get a lot from it. And with that, I just want to say thanks. And maybe you can join us again in the future. We can talk some other new adventures that you might have going on. Um, both exciting things outside of work, but also um, with what you've got going on in your business life as well. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And I definitely will join again. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you for listening to Exponential Everyday. If you could do me a favor and leave me a review, I would really appreciate it.